You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. The film we are here to discuss is Dune, which came out in 2021 and was directed by Denis Villeneuve. I know you. One day, the legend will be born. All of civilization depends on it. The future, I can see it. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. My Lord Duke. Where the fear is gone, only I will remain. It stars Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Zendaya, Oscar Isaac, Jason Momoa, Stellan Skarsgård, Josh Brolin, Javier Bardem, Sharon Duncan Brewster, Charlotte Rampling, David Deschmalchen, and Dave Bautista. And the genre would be sci-fi epic. And also, spoiler alert, as the ending of this movie will be briefly discussed in this review. Dune. Now, would you consider half of a seemingly excellent movie to still be an excellent movie? That's the question posed to me after now having seen this twice. Once in IMAX and once via streaming. And it's a more difficult question because it was clearly the director's intent. The director, of course, is French-Canadian wonderkind Denis Villeneuve. And over the past decade, he has developed a very strong track record of thinking man's genre films, Sicario, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049. And this is no small feat considering that we're now mired in the age of McBlockbusters. And this film does stand out amidst all of the forgettable Venoms and F9s out there in that it's a beautifully crafted epic story. Denis has taken on the challenging task of adapting, along with co-writers Eric Roth and John Spates, what many have long considered to be very dense and unfilmable source material. And that source material, of course, is Frank Herbert's seminal sci-fi novel Dune from 1965. Indeed, the source material is dense, as there are more than two dozen major characters, among several different dueling factions of families, spread throughout space including the House of Atreides and the House of Harkonnen, all competing for dominance in the trade of the Spice Melange, which is mostly mined on the planet of Arrakis, also known as Dune, hence the title. Although I'm not sure I remember anyone actually saying Dune throughout the movie. This material is so dense that it was actually adapted as a feature film once before, and to no avail in the 1984 big-budget flop of the same name directed by David Lynch. Now, that film was confusing and overstuffed, though it did have a certain style about it, notably Sting strutting around in that metal diaper. So what Denis has done in adapting that first seminal 500-page original novel this time is to split its story in half, meaning that this 2021 movie is actually just part one. This is only the beginning... As a part one, this film does a very efficient job of delving into this universe, pretty much introducing us to all the major players and setting the stakes within the first 30 minutes. 
Now, for something at this scale, I don't think I have seen such effective world building since Fellowship of the Ring from 20 years ago. Even more impressive, Villeneuve isn't nearly as ponderous in his introductions as Peter Jackson was with that first Lord of the Rings film. Hey, look, I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but I never quite saw the need to just hang out with the hobbits in the Shire for the first 45 or 50 minutes. There's nothing like that here, gratefully, even though this thing is deliberately paced like an old-school epic. Now, regarding those players, they're all quite good. On paper, Timothy Chalamet is playing a very tropey character as our main protagonist, Paul Atreides, who is apparently being groomed towards being, quote, the one. Yeah, we've seen this before, for sure. But considering that this source material predates Star Wars or The Matrix, you really can't fault Denis and crew for that. And Chalamet is a fine actor, and despite costume design, which at first appearance has him looking about as emo as Kylo Ren or Edward Scissorhands, he fortunately doesn't play him that way. His Paul Atreides is an upstart for sure, but he's a humble upstart who's eager to learn, and I enjoyed his arc through this story. I guess I'm not in the mood today. Mood? Yeah. What's mood to do with it? You fight when the necessity arises, no matter the mood. Now fight! Come on! Oscar Isaac and Rebecca Ferguson also really deliver the goods in perfect, regal fashion as his parents, Duke Leto and Lady Jessica. These actors, they're only 15 and 12 years older than Chalamet, respectively, but they both pull it off with convincing warmth and concern. We believe them as a family. And the whole Atreides gang is filled with good performers bringing the heat, especially Josh Brolin as Gurney, who's pretty much Paul's sensei, teaching him how to fight, and Sharon Duncan Brewster as Dr. Kynes, who is the resident ecological advisor, which is actually much more interesting than it sounds. And then there's Jason, my man, Momoa, as Duncan Idaho. What a name. I love that name. He's the resident badass doing recon missions on Arrakis. Well, he's playing Jason Momoa, but hey, he does it well, and he's always fun to watch. Listen, dreams make good stories, but everything important happens when we're awake, because that's when we make things happen. Me and you. Put on some muscle? I did? No. Hey. See you in Arrakis, my boy. On the other side are the villains of the House of Harkonnen, populated with another group of strong actors, including Stellan Skarsgård, Dave Bautista, and one of my personal favorites, David Deshmelshin. But we'll get to them a bit later. And in the middle of this brewing conflict are the Freemen, the natives of Arrakis, who are mostly represented by Javier Bardem in a very nicely droll turn as their leader, as his introduction also provides the film's biggest laugh. And that also includes Zendaya, who, believe it or not, is featured more in this movie than I could have expected. Her role as Shawnee, it's kind of an extended cameo that's really not a cameo. She appears throughout the film mostly as a visage for Paul or appearing in his dreams, but she honestly has more screen time than most of the other cast. Now, she's not given much to say, but her appearances are memorable, and they do help move the story forward as, through her, we get an increasing clearer picture of what Paul's fate is. It's tricky to judge how good she is or even how compelling her character actually is, but it bodes well for more to come in part two. Now, despite not much in the way of humor, it's all very watchable. And that's very much helped by the technical aspects of this film, which across the board are just amazing. The sound design, art direction, cinematography, seamless visual effects, costumes, everything just looks both sumptuous and lived in. The DP, Greg Frazier, was also the DP for Rogue One which was the best thing about that movie. And that should tell you that if you're shooting something large-scale, taking place on other worlds, he is your guy. 
The action sequences are also very exciting. They never wear out their welcome, and each are instrumental to the story. All of the action is well-staged and exciting to watch, especially a few tense sequences involving the sandworms, which are roving through the sands of Arrakis. My only real disappointment was that we only see a brief, fleeting image of someone actually riding one of those sandworms. Hmm. It's almost as if Dini was teasing us and hoping to leave the audience wanting more at the end. And boy, does he. That's my biggest issue with this movie. It just ends. Not on a high note with any particular conflict resolved, even though there is a slightly consequential fight preceding that ending. Now, the ending isn't bad, per se. It's beautifully shot like the rest of the film, with a couple of interesting character beats, but it's not completely satisfying. Denis is genuinely cutting us off mid-story. I honestly cannot recall such a brazen, quote, leaving you hanging ending for a franchise blockbuster like this since Matrix Reloaded. And even in that instance, we all knew that Matrix Revolutions was coming in six months. Of course, we just didn't know how lame it was going to be. Now, I loved Matrix Reloaded. And I actually quite like that ending, too, just for the effort-all nature of it. Denis Villeneuve's approach is almost too stately, too dignified, if that makes sense. It's not remotely like a cliffhanger nor following some surprise reveal. It's as if he's just calmly telling us, now come on, folks, you've had a lot of cool sand action and a lot of hints through Paul's dreams of where this story is going. It's all in the books. There's way too much story left, and the studio told me I could do this in two parts. So let's just take a nice breather here with a three-plus-year intermission and stay tuned. And to be fair, there are a few directors out there who have been consistently strong as Villeneuve has been in recent years. So maybe he has earned the goodwill to leave his audience hanging like this at the end of the movie. With the exception of a satisfying ending, though, Dune 21 gives you almost everything you need. Good characters, compelling story, tension, genuine wonder, impressive action, and even some interesting themes regarding fear, family, religion, and of course, colonialism. I just can't call it an excellent standalone movie at this point. But hopefully if it keeps racking up those IMAX grosses and or more HBO Max subscriptions, then Warner Brothers will stay true to their word and we'll have another sequel coming, and we're halfway there. And now for a quick shout-out to our friends at Nerds Talking, the podcast. Head on over to Nerds Talking Podcast if you have some time for a podcast about everything from movies, games, comic books, pop culture, current affairs, and utter chaos. Check them out. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Considering how much I love the rock opera themes crafted by the pop band Toto for the 1984 Dune, this latest incarnation of Dune had a pretty high bar to clear for me, just from the standpoint of its score. Speaking of which, if you haven't heard their theme which plays during the end credits of that movie as we see a roll call of the cast, well, to risk sounding like a nostalgic middle-aged child of the 80s, let's just say that it rocks. And judging by the rest of his movies and the general vibe that they give off, it was really never in the cards for Denis to demand a rocking soundtrack this time around. But that's okay, because after dazzling with his impressively eclectic score recently for No Time to Die, Hans Zimmer demonstrates once again with Dune that he is our most reliable big-time film composer. He still has a few new tricks up his sleeve this time around, as he delivers a rousing epic score 
albeit utilizing several exotic sounds, often coming from newly crafted instruments. It's all punctuated with female vocals chanting out a unique new language that was created just for this universe. And what results is just an expansive wall of sound, which enhances what we're seeing on the screen, but rarely distracts from it. It's a gorgeous score with many highlights, but if I had to choose one, it would be the music we hear during a particularly harrowing sequence about halfway through as we watch several of our protagonists from the House of Atreides attempt to rescue a large group of workers from a mining vehicle deep in the desert of the Dune planet from an incoming sandworm. The track is called Ripples in the Sand. It conveys both the escalating danger of the sequence and the beauty of this world. The next category is Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, regarding our main trio of actors playing those villainous Harkonnens, disappointingly, none of them are given that much to do. Well, Skarsgård, who's actually playing the main villain, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, he does have a sizable amount of screen time and dialogue, and he also looks pretty creepy floating around inside a giant black fat suit. But as written, his character is pretty much just one note overall which also goes for Batista and Desmalchen as well. Now, each of these guys look great at being menacing, but all they really do for the most part is either sneer or threaten. The jury's still out if any of the Harkonnens are truly interesting characters, as they're just not given much depth, at least not for this first half of the story. Sun lives. Now our trade is we live. My lord, you gave your word to the witch, and she sees too much. I said I would not harm them, and I shall not. But Arrakis is Arrakis. And the desert takes the weak. My desert. My Iraqis. My doom. And that brings me to the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Now about those sandworms. They were actually the most impressive, most visually impressive aspect of the 1984 film. And yet this time around, they are presented even more seamlessly within this environment. Just genuinely tense stuff as they are featured in several key sequences. And not just the impressive sight of them in and of themselves, these giant worms, you know, going through the sand. Even the imagery of just sand billowing in the distance as our characters see these worms coming, it kind of reminded me of those awesome long-distance reveals of the, of the AT-ATs or the AT-ATs headed for the rebels on Hoth in Empire Strikes Back. Bottom line, anytime a sandworm appears, that's your trailer moment. It's a thumper. Someone set off a thumper. And that brings me to the final category, which would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. 
Now, have I mentioned how much I love those sandworms? No, they can't be the MVPs. They don't have names. That's just silly. But I will give the MVP to the master craftsman who is most responsible for them, and that would be the visual effects supervisor, Paul Lambert. As tempted as I am to give the MVP to Denis Villeneuve, I still have some hesitancy because he hasn't really completed his story. So given that, the one aspect of Dune Part 1 which impressed me the most were the visual effects. And besides the aforementioned sandworms, I especially loved the design and execution of the ornithopter, if I'm pronouncing it right, which ends up being the main mode of transportation throughout Arrakis for our heroes. It's like a helicopter, but instead of propellers, it mainly carries the wind with rapidly flapping, extended skinny wings. It's truly nifty stuff, which looks both otherworldly and practical. Now, looking back through his IMDb, Lambert also spearheaded the visual effects for Tron Legacy, Oblivion, The Day After Tomorrow, The Third Pirates Movie, and iRobot. And what do each of these films have in common? They're all fantastical stories which present a lot of clearly fantastical events, objects, and or settings, and yet all of it looks very tactile. Now, this is not to say that Lambert was solely responsible, as it takes massive teams of generally underpaid, overworked technicians to pull all these effects off. Even though this film is a technical marvel across the board, it's the world building and the visual effects behind them which are most impressive. And for that reason, Lambert is your MVP. Atreides! My rating for Dune is four stars out of five. Dune Part One, The Rise of Paul. That's my nickname. It's a pretty impressive popcorn entertainment with an epic scope and scale, the likes of which we just don't see that often nowadays. But as I have said, it left me wanting. I, of course, reserve the right to change my rating based on how that part two turns out, hopefully sooner rather than later. But I do recommend it. And if you can see it on the biggest screen possible, IMAX Dolby, by all means, because it is currently playing in theaters. It is also streaming on HBO Max. And that ends another granular review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast. Follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.